Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 17. I'm Rick, author of the new daily devotional, Jesus Center Daily, released last October. Just a reminder, great gift for grad, grads in your life, uh, high schoolers or college students. It's a fantastic way to launch them into their next phase. Um, so good for that. Even good for, you know, um, a Christmas gift, if you get it now. As I'm recording this, right on Amazon, on Amazon on this moment, the Jesus Center Daily is like $11. It's like $6 below its retail price. So if you're looking around for a, a great gift, it's a hardback daily devotional. Uh, what a bargain, 11 bucks. So, um, but really my heart behind all this, as you know, if you've been listening to podcasts for a long time, is that getting a book like this um, is a way to uh, introduce people to a new way of thinking and seeing Jesus. Um, and it's a way of inviting them to have a deeper, more connective relationship with Jesus. And this is one of the easiest ways to, um, to live out your heart toward those around you is to give them something that you value, that you think they might really gain from. So I encourage you to, to think about that. I'll put a link to the Jesus Center Daily in, on our episode page for paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. This is again, season six, episode 17. And it's the ninth and last episode in a series that I've called Jesus People. So we've been exploring the stories of the people who encountered Jesus and what happened when they did. So that, that means friends and enemies and everywhere in between. Sometimes the encounters are long, sometimes they're brief. Sometimes people have an encounter with Jesus and they don't even know it. <laughs> But all of them leave change. That's why I've referenced this quote from Dr. Peter Kreef, the Boston University professor and C.S. Lewis scholar. Um, this quote has prefaced every one of the episodes in this series. Here's what Peter Kreef said. Christ changed every human being he ever met. If anyone claims to have met him without being changed, he has not met him at all. When you touch him, you touch lightning. So lightning strikes, whether you love him or hate him, it's going to burn the ground around you. So I thought we'd close off this series with a focus on one of the most unusual, bizarre, powerful encounters Jesus ever had. It's with a host of demons who call themselves collectively legion. So Jesus had 11 encounters with the demonic in the New Testament, and those are just the encounters we know about. So it's clear that dealing with demonic entities was just a common part of Jesus' everyday life. Uh, we don't even, we can't even conceive how many times stories like what we read in the New Testament where he encounters the demonic, how many times that happened, because we know from the gospel writers that they're only collecting a little bit, a sliver of the story of Jesus in the gospels. There's a whole lot more we don't know about. Can't, uh, won't it be fascinating when we're with him in person when we see him face to face, to spend hours asking him, well, what else happened? <laughs> if this is what we know, what else happened? So 
as we'll see in the story we're about to explore, Jesus didn't just, well, um, I guess you could say he didn't whack demons when he encountered them. He actually had a relationship with them. That's a mind blower, isn't it? Um, so because of that, because Jesus has a relationship with the demonic, we can learn a lot about his heart and the kingdom of God he's invited us into by simply paying closer attention to his relationship with demonic influences. So because we live in a so-called modern society, of course, this kind of thing seems like relegated to scary movies in third world countries, not in our shiny contemporary middle-class reality, but again, because Jesus spent so much time interacting with demonic influences, it's important not to skip over this. Um, he's, he's trying to make a point. So, the, and for us, we need to slow down and discover the what and high of these encounters. And there's no better example than the lengthy, detailed story of his back and forth with Legion. So to explore this story, I've invited Billy Hollowell, Director of Communications and Content for PureFlix.com and the author of a new book called Playing with Fire, A Modern Investigation into Demons, Exorcism, and Ghosts. Billy and I have known each other for a while. He's, he's a former senior editor at faithwire.com, and he's contributed to foxnews.com, Washington Post, Human Events, The Daily Caller, media, Mediaite, <laughs> I always screw that up, and The Huffington Post, among lots of other outlets. He used to uh, be half of a podcast called The Church Boys, too. That was a lot of fun. Uh, and he's worked as a journalist and a commentator for more than 15 years, and I'm just so grateful he's here. Billy, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So uh, a little more about uh, your interests and even why you would write such a book about the demonic. It's you know, not it's, exactly on the, you know, if you, if you did a, if you did a, a survey of people and said, what's top of mind for you about the Christian life? probably wouldn't be my relationship with the demonic. <laughs> right. It's one of those topics that you bring up with people and they're like, oh, oh. okay. Even people in the church are like, oh, interesting. Yeah. And they back away a little bit from oh, you. Like totally. Or, or they're wondering why in the world would this be something that you would, you would ever want to pour time into? And there's a lot of different reasons why people ask that because I think there's a little fear. Like they're a little freaked out. Like this is a weird topic. Why would you? It's really, I think, a topic that's not understood well. By a lot of people in the church, ironically. And strangely, it's one of, and I'm sure, I don't know if there are other topics like this. I would argue it's one of the topics that is talked about more frequently sometimes in some circles in the secular world in Hollywood than it is in some churches. And But yet it's a church topic. And that's, that is an interesting thing for me, which is one of the things that it, uh, has always attracted me to, to the subject. I think it's a fascinating topic. I actually think now having written the book on it, that it's essential that we talk about it, not obsess over it, not have an unhealthy relationship with it, but it's such a major part of scripture. And to ignore it or pretend it's not there is strange to me. So we could talk more about that, but but for me, I'm always attracted to topics that as a journalist, I, I have a journalistic mindset, that's what I've done for years and that's how I think, what are things we're not talking about in the church or what are really important topics in our faith that I might not be an expert on at all, but that I can talk to experts on. And that's why I've always loved talking with you because you're just such a, a brain and a heart for everything Bible, um, but that I can talk to and bring it together in a way that helps people understand it while I'm learning along the way. And so that was sort of the journey with this, but I have to tell you, 
I did not want to write this book. And if I wasn't certain that God wanted me to, I would not have. I really, I tried not to write it. I went out of my way to try to not do it. So well, but here here's, I am. Here's something, here's something spookyish. I have a long history of, of not just writing books, but writing articles and blogs and all kinds of stuff over the last three decades. Whenever I did anything that had anything to do with the demonic or uh, what you'd say the dark side of the spiritual world, um, interesting things happened around, yes. like uh, we would have suddenly lots of problems with the magazine I used to edit with that issue. If that was the cover article of the issue, we had these series of strange, uh, very unusual problems that would crop up all of a sudden. And we used to joke about it, you know, like, you know, nudge, nudge. It's because we're talking <laughs> about Satan. But, you know, part of me knows too that uh, part of the path to understanding the heart of Jesus is to take him more literally. And we, there are so many things about him that we just jump over because they seem like they're well, part, part of a movie or something, or they seem right. like well, that's, that's kind of like, that's Jesus for you. I call this jumping over mud puddles because little kids wallow in them, but adults jump over them. And that's what we do as adults. We come up to these mud puddles and we say, well, that's Jesus for you. So all of these <laughs> demonic encounters that he has, We've just compartmentalized away. And so if you start to say, well, actually, he's had, as we have, I've already mentioned, he's had a lot of encounters and some that many, I'm sure that we don't know about because not everything is in the New Testament. This was like a everyday thing for him. And so, but yet for us, we have the reaction that you're talking about now, uh, which is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I maybe saw a movie about that once, but it's not really a present part of my everyday reality. Exactly. We want to be entertained by it. A lot of us, even in the church, we don't want, and this was me before, before writing this book, I was afraid of this topic. I was petrified. I didn't want to write it because I didn't understand that Christians have authority over these things that that's not to say we're not going to face spiritual warfare or other issues, but that I really felt like really strange things are going to happen because I was having weird things happen whenever I would cover these things, um, you know, for the blaze or for faith wire or wherever I was. So I had, I had experience covering it, but I thought to pour myself into a book and you have written so many books, you know what it's like. It's a lot of time, a lot of energy. And do I want to put myself into something that is so negative? Now this is my mindset beforehand and so dark. And those are important things to consider. And I think it actually, I, to go into this project, I started making sure I was reading my Bible every day, that I was doing the things I knew I should have been doing anyway, but that I was so busy, I was falling away from. And what was so interesting was that finishing Playing With Fire, I was reading daily. I have not stopped since, since I started you know, working on the book. It, it really set me on course. And I found myself saying, and this is like an encouragement to people who are freaked out by this topic or who don't want to study it in the church, that by understanding evil and really seeing it in that concentrated manner and then unpacking it and writing about it, I had such a clearer desire and understanding of who Jesus is and what grace is. It just, it actually brought... It, which I know sounds strange, but it brought it full circle for me in a way that I hadn't experienced before. And you you referenced something I think we'll get into when we jump into the story of Jesus' encounter with Legion, but you referenced something there that, that for me became a huge thing. The one thing we don't talk about in the church hardly ever is this whole um, idea of authority that is all over the New and Old Testament. Um, authority plays a huge role in this whole arena of our, our relationship with the spiritual world. I met a guy, 
um, oh, probably 10 years ago now when I was writing a book called Sifted that I had a whole chapter on the nature of Satan. So like you, I'm a journalist and I was finding people to talk to that had been more in this world than I was. And I, I met a counselor who specialized in dealing with the demonic in people. And I, I don't know what I thought before I met him, but he was not at all what I thought he was like. He would be like, he was the most calm, relaxed, kind of subtle, almost deadpan person. And what he told me about and then showed me, I got to witness what he was doing, um, changed everything for me because he was completely relaxed as he engaged people because he had a very deep and rich and broad understanding of authority. So he was relaxed in all of his encounters with people. And it really staggered me. I, I was um, just transformed by how he related to people with this very, so a very non-cinematic way that he, that he related to people. So I think we'll, we'll get into some of that as we discover how Jesus encountered a man who had perhaps thousands of demonic personas living inside of him. We'll, we'll get into some of that a little bit. So how about if we jump in and then we'll see where this goes. I'm just going to read the entire encounter, and then Billy and I will explore it more in depth after I've read it. So this is this is uh, Jesus and the demon possessed man. Uh, uh, this this particular version of this encounter is in Mark five, and um, I'll read it through, and then Billy and I will talk about it. So so they, um, and that means Jesus and his disciples. Those are the they. They arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of, from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves. Okay, you just got to stop there for a second. You mm. can't get any spookier than that. That's, the guy yeah, lives in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. So, so far it's Hollywood cinema, cinematic. Yeah. Story. Where they get it from. <laughs> yeah. No one was strong enough to subdue him day and night. He wandered among the burial caves and in the Hills howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. So you can imagine you're headed home from a nighttime gathering and uh, it's, it's like 11 o'clock midnight and you hear the howling man howling in the burial caves in the hills and cutting himself with sharp stones. So, and you're terrified and you're thinking, and you know that he could break chains. How right? could you not be? It's like, yeah. uh, so when Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him and ran to meet him and bowed low before him with a shriek. He screamed, why are you interfering with me? Jesus, son of the most high in the name of God, I beg you don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, what's your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again, not to send them to some distant place. Well, there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Uh, Legion said, send us into those pigs. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs 
plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Boy, we have to remember here, that's like somebody's very large agricultural operation suddenly yeah. being destroyed um, in a moment. So the herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran, and people rushed out to see what had happened. This was a big deal. <laughs> a crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed and perfect, perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what had happened told the others about the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. So as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, go, go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he's been. So the man started off to visit the 10 towns of that region and began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed at what he told them. Wow. Yeah, one thing I have to point out too is um, the New Testament is full of lots of stories and encounters Jesus has. There aren't that many that go into this level of detail. Um, this is one of the long ones. This is right up there with uh, the man born blind and uh, his parable of the Good Samaritan. These are long and detailed stories. And it's interesting that one of the long and detailed stories is about this um, incredible encounter. So let's see if we can explore this story a little to discover uh, the deeper recesses of Jesus' heart. And then let's see if we can make some connections to our everyday life as crazy as that prospect seems right now, but we're talking <laughs> to the right person in Billy to, to make some of those connections. So first off, Billy, let's, this, this encounter seems uh, to me kind of like a case study for understanding the nature of spiritual authority and the reality of the supernatural world. So from a broad perspective, given the number of encounters Jesus has with the demonic, why does this seem like a strange story that could only happen in the Bible, not real life? You know what's so interesting, and I want you to push back on anything you disagree with, but you know, every time I visit this story, I, I think of a number of elements, and, and the first that I think of is from our perspective, we look at these stories and we think this is so wild. It looks like it's like Linda Blair, the head spinning, you know, the pea soup is spewing out of the mouth like in The Exorcist, but when you start to look through it, and I think there are other things possibly going on here with anger and frustration over the death of the pigs, which we can get to, um, but it seemed to be shocking to the people then too, right? It, to a degree. It's not as though, and we know that this was something that was happening in Jesus's ministry. He, as you were saying, he has encountered the demonic numerous times, but yet people are petrified in this moment. And so it's not, I think a lot of times we talk about people in Bible times as though they were just, you know, they'd believe anything. They'd be what, I mean, they expel Jesus. They ask him to leave after they are. So I obviously, again, there may be anger there over the, over the death of the pigs, but there is clearly fear, um, uncertainty. They know that, you know, this man has been healed. They know what he was like before. They know what he, they're seeing what he's like now. And there, I think there are some spiritual things we could talk about that are possibilities here too. But there's this level of fear and uncertainty there that I think actually brings me a strange sort of comfort that even the people then, and I know this sounds almost like a weird thing to say, but even they're struggling with this, right? Mm. And so that to me is actually a really compelling undertone 
of, of this encounter. And I do think we like to put Jesus in this interesting box, this materialistic box. We're, we're all so obsessed with the material now, right? We're so distracted with our phones, with everything that's happening, that we forget Ephesians 6. We forget that there is this battle that is going on. And these people actually saw this battle unfold. And there are people today who see this battle unfold or who are aware of it when it does unfold in their lives. And there are stories like this that we have you know, claims of account of happening as we speak. So yeah, I just, I find that interesting, that parallel of they didn't just accept this and think that this is like normal and okay. They, they reacted to it very strongly. So even, uh, even what you're describing there, when you use the phrase spiritual warfare or things like that, and I think functionally we're in a attitude of sort of wink, wink about that kind of stuff. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, in our reality, if we encountered someone like this, we would say there's a severe psychological problem at work yes. here. And this, this guy needs some medical professionals to come alongside him. And yet it's not like psychological issues weren't acknowledged during the time of Jesus, but this ain't that this is clearly, no. this is clearly contextualized as an encounter with the demonic. And so for contemporary people like us, um, we would never go to this kind of conclusion as our first conclusion. We would first say, wow, there's some real serious mental illness here. So how have, how have you uh, focused on that attention yourself, Billy, between the psychological and the spiritual? You know, that for me was so important going into writing Playing With Fire that I spoke with mental health providers, the people who, who understand every realm and every facet of the person. Because you can interact. In fact, I was just interacting with somebody who runs a ministry for veterans and they deal with PTSD and they deal with emotional trauma. And they were so disturbed working with veterans before they started their nonprofit and seeing that the medical system and that the military, that everybody was addressing the physical issues, obviously coming out of combat. They were addressing the perceived medical, I'm sorry, mental issues coming out, but they were not addressing the spiritual issues at all. And I'm not just talking about spiritual warfare here. I'm talking about the actual, you know, the, the actual disconnect that people are experiencing because of what they've gone through. There's mental anguish tied to that. They weren't addressing it. And so to not address that in a person, if you're truly ill, and, and you see in this story that this actual individual is said to be sitting down, quote, sane. He's suddenly sane, right? And so my fear is that some people will see a demon under every rock. So every illness, every problem, not just mental illnesses, physical illnesses are caused by the demonic. I mean, there are people who, who believe that, that everything is directly always tied. And there are people on the other side, even in the church, who would say that nothing is caused by the demonic. And I think as somebody who's examined culture a lot, I like to look at culture and see, okay, where are we? What is happening? What deceptions are there in culture? Where are those coming from? So to sort of simplify all of that, I would say we have to find that balance and we have to be open to understanding what is actually going on in each individual case. And so I went to mental, mental health providers to ask those questions. And it's amazing how many people I was encountering and these are not Christians. These are people who work in the mental health field at prominent universities. I live in New York. Here in New York City, there are some people dealing with these sorts of things of spiritual warfare, um, or they're at least recognizing there is something that they cannot medically explain going on. And that's deeply compelling to me for a secular person to say that or to admit, you know, there, there's another component here that we don't quite understand. 
Hmm. That's it. That's fascinating. I, I had a, a guy in my life who influenced my trajectory a lot in many different ways. But one of them was one day I was hanging out with him and he just turned with this kind of wry smile on his face. And he said, Rick, um, how's your relationship with Satan today? And I laughed. I laughed out loud because I thought you're just snarking with me. And actually, he was serious. And he asked this question uh, to upend people all the time. How's your relationship with Satan? And he meant it funny, but also serious in that he said, well, we all have one. And Jesus had one. And you see this, this encounter, if it's anything, it is a relational encounter. We think of the demonic as almost like a Harry Potter moment where I wave my wand and my magical powers excise something that needs to go. But Jesus actually has a conversation with Legion. And there are some relational dynamics that show up in this encounter from both sides, from Jesus' side and the side of Legion. Um, there are some relational things going on here. Uh, I, I thought it'd be interesting for us to just slow down and look at some of these things that stand out within the relationship and maybe we can make some and you can make some connections to some of the themes that have come out in your book but one of them is that here's this scary guy who lives in the tombs and everyone's afraid of him because he has this like kind of like supernatural power to break chains and this out of control guy comes running toward jesus so most people would then run away from the scary guy running toward them and jesus stands and the guy first bows down to Jesus before he even opens his mouth. So here's two questions out of that. Why would this man possessed by demons run toward Jesus? And what is the significance of his bow? What do you think? I think the significance of the bow is that these, this man obviously being controlled by who knows how many demons, they are well aware of who Jesus is. They call him son of God. They know who's approaching them. And it's interesting to me that the man is out of control, but he's just, you just described him again. He's cutting himself. He's self-harming. He's freaking everybody out. He's breaking chains. He's suddenly in control enough because they're in control of him enough to bow down and speak clearly and then actually have a clear thought, a streamlined thought to ask that Jesus not torment them which shows that they're well aware that Jesus has the ability to torment them if he so chooses and that he has the ability to send them wherever he wants. It seems like they know not only who he is, but they know how the story ends for them. And I would imagine, or they have a good idea that they're going to be defeated. And so it's, it's such a fascinating moment because it's all chaos up until that second, that moment. And there's some chaos after obviously, but there's that clarity and that sudden cohesiveness that shows you there's a relationship and it's a power relationship there. And Jesus is at the helm of it. I think that's interesting what you said there. It's a power or authority relationship. The other thing that always strikes me about that particular thing with the, with Legion saying, don't, so Legion makes the assumption that Jesus will torture these demons that, and, and uh, if you track back, if you reverse engineer this, from the demonic goes back to um, the, who they serve. So Satan is who they serve. I think that the reason why the God's redemption plan actually worked was because he played on the blindness of Satan to pull off this plan of redemption. And one of those blindnesses is, is that Satan has never understood the heart of God. 
why would you create these ugly creations in the first place? <laughs> They're not even worth my time. Why do you even care about these disgusting, disobedient chattel? Uh, why are you even paying attention to them? Um, uh, Satan has never understood God's heart. And here we see, again, the demonic has no idea what's in, inside the heart of Jesus. I think you pointed out well, Billy, they understand his power and authority, but they don't understand his motivation or uh, why his heart is the way they, it is because they ass simply assume he's, they're going to get tortured by him. They do seem aware. It's interesting by and I guess people will beg when they're desperate, right? I think I'm putting it in the human sense. They do seem to think that there's some chance they could compel him, maybe, or they're at least willing to try, right? <laughs> Please don't say and and that very specific don't send us to a far away place, I find very, very interesting. What do you what do you think that's referencing? You know, and, th and this is all speculation because we don't know. I mean, there are people who are going to say this is what it is, but you know, it's it's in a lot of the stories that I've looked at and a lot of people I've spoken with, it is interesting. I've heard a number of things that the demonic can sort of obviously move locations, be in different places, the same sort of spirits, people will tell you, the same sort of demons. Um, but I also wonder if they were experiencing a great deal of success where they were and didn't want to leave. You huh. know, that that they were realizing this was a place and we can connect that into the reaction that the locals have as well, maybe, but that this is a place where this has been fruitful for them. They're able to find other hosts. They're able to move place to place, or, you know, obviously this is a controversial idea, whether or not infestation is real, the possession of a place and not just people. Um, we seem to be dealing obviously exclusively and mostly with possessions of people in scripture. And then you have the pigs here, but, but I think that's intriguing to me that maybe they enjoyed the location where they were for nefarious reasons and not for, not for positive reasons. They, it was positive to them, but because they knew they could wreak havoc there. It's interesting what you just brought up there too, about the infestation of a place rather than a person. I think there's a, a good amount of evidence that places carry with them spiritual yeah. undertones and uh, I, I remember in, in one place I lived in Northern Colorado for a while, there was a site where uh, an entire Native American village was massacred and places that were built on top of that site were well known in the area for having lots of strange and bad things happen on that yeah. site. And so you think, well, that's just spooky talk. And maybe a lot of that is, but there is this sense that places do um, capture, um, and I love I love the way you refer to that. Have kind of a spiritual infestation in and of themselves, and maybe this is one of those places that was quite conducive to this kind yeah. of dark spiritual activity. But the other thing you raised there, I think, is interesting: is Jesus commands the spirit to come out of the man, but the spirit doesn't at first. So when we're talking about authority. Jesus says, come out of the man and the spirit says, wait, 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 wait a minute. Can we just talk about this for a second? Um, and so the spirit essentially refuses to come out initially um, and then tries to bargain with Jesus a little bit. And Jesus doesn't find that offensive. He's like, okay, well, well, we can talk about it then. All right. What, what is it you want? <laughs> so what do we know must be true about the demonic from this sort of initial tension? What do you draw from that? You know, obviously they're resistant and he could have, they knew he could make them do these things. They know he, I would assume 
he already knows what they're going to ask him or he has obviously he knows what's going to come. So it tells us a lot about Jesus, too. There's a lot of patience there, I think. Uh, but also, I, I think they're resistant. And we see this in Mark 9. It's I forget which verse it is, but where the disciples are unable to heal the little boy. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you see this is just another element that I find intriguing with all of this. Cause I encountered this in talking with people who do deliverance or exorcisms. I mean, you can get into the whole lexicon of how people describe all of this. Cause it's very, it gets very confusing, but this idea that the people who work in this, in this realm saying that they sometimes will encounter possession scenarios or oppression scenarios in which they need to do a little more. Um, and that gets controversial because you have the Catholic church's view of how you do this is very different from most Protestants, obviously, and that you're dealing with holy water and all these other things that people would say, you don't need any of that. And I'm not saying you do. What I'm saying here is that in, in Mark nine, we have Jesus. The disciples are like, why couldn't we heal this little boy? And he says, um, this kind can only, I, I wrote this down because it's important. I want to get it right. This kind can only can come only out by prayer. And I found that interesting. He's referring to the type of, of demonic you know, presence that's there and that there may be different things that need to happen for, for different. Now that could get controversial, but, but clearly there's something going on there, right? It required something different. And obviously there's an element of faith there as well. There's a discussion about um, the, the amount of faith that is needed to do this. And that's something that's very consistent. The most important person in a room, any deliverance minister, any person dealing with exorcism will tell you is the person who's afflicted, right? I mean, that's the person who has to want, but the second most important person is the person who is commanding that out. And so that that's just interesting to me. I wanted to bring that up. Yeah. It, and you're, you're um, moving into some territory. I think is really interesting here too, that we're talking about this as a relational encounter. And so a couple of relational things that happen here is Jesus first asked to know the name of the demon he's interacting with. So it's almost like he's being polite. Right. Oh, what's, what's your name again? He's not <laughs> saying you're a, like a faceless entity. He wants to know the name of the demonic that's inside of this man. So that's the first thing he does. And then um, the demons obviously beg him to not do what they think he's going to do. And instead they suggest, well, we could go inhabit those pigs over there instead. And Jesus listens to this request, accommodates that request, and seems to actually show compassion, some kind of compassion for these demonic presences that have ruined this man's life and scared everyone in the region. Um, all of these things are relational uh, things you do in an interaction, but yeah. not with a monster. So how do you explain all that? I I wonder, and this is where it gets interesting, right? Because you, again, you're left to try to figure out some of these, and there's little mysteries in the margins on, on this. You wonder, is he testing to see? Because he, he knows, I, Jesus knows. I, he knows what he's dealing with here. Is he testing to see if it's going to be, if these demons are going to be honest about who they are, how many there are, and what and what is going on here? before they make the requests that they make. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's well, interesting. So wait, wait, me. I got to stop you there. That's a fascinating thought to me. So he's, he's trying to see if they're going to be honest and his response to them will also come out of whether or not they're being honest. I wonder. 
I wonder, I don't know. I find that I find that to be a compelling and because you're left with a number of other options, like does Jesus not know how many there are? Does he not know who's there? I don't believe he does and I believe he does. So why then? Why ask these questions that he knows? It could be he's he's being polite, he's being compassionate and he could be doing all of these things at the same time. You know, when we talk about the compassion element though, Part of me wonders if he's actually being more compassionate to the locals who are going to watch this and the people who see it, because if it's an area that's dealing with this problem repetitively and there's a lot of sin there and there's a lot that attracts this sort of thing to that area, what is the penalty for unrestrained sin, disconnection from Jesus? What happens to the pigs? Where do they go? They die, right? And so as I'm as I've reread it, I've thought, I wonder if this is almost a message to everybody to say, look, this is what you have here. This is where it's going, and this is where you're going to go if you don't repent and accept me. Now, I don't know. I find I find it an interesting component of everything that, that is going on there and why he would make that allowance. He would use it maybe in that way. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of questions left to explore here in this encounter. Um, I'm thinking about, um, again, under the relational umbrella of this encounter, um, that metaphorically, it feels more like a parent who's walked into the kitchen and found that their son is in the cookie jar. Well, what are you doing? Uh, well, I was trying to get a cookie. Well, you know, you're not supposed to do that, right? So put the cookie back. You're not going to punish me, are you? <laughs> and then the son starts to negotiate a little bit. That's kind of the tenor of this encounter. Not with the monstrous man who lives in the burial caves and breaks every chain. He is relaxed um, in a way that none of us would be in this encounter. Yeah. And and the legion actually, uh, Jesus doesn't send the demons into the pigs. The legion asks for permission yes. to go yeah. into the pigs. And Jesus says, okay, you have my permission. So all that I just said there, Billy, what do you take away from this whole uh, relationship to authority and the encountering of the demonic in, in our everyday life? What should we take away from what Jesus is modeling here? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's fascinating. Even I want to just go back to answer that. I want to go back to what I was saying about the message he's sending, the compassion and the message he might be sending to those who are watching this. All of it is sort of pointing us, it's not sort of it definitely is pointing us back toward the solution. What is the solution? What was the solution for this man whose entire life was destroyed, who I would imagine maybe his family's life was destroyed by by what had happened to him. We don't know how it happened. We don't know how he got there, which I think is fascinating about mo all of these stories of possession. We don't know. But what we do know is who the healer is, what the solution to that is. And that solution is Jesus. And that solution is not just this one-time thing. It's following Jesus day in and day out, taking up the shield of faith. It's Ephesians 6. It, it brings me back to all of that. And we can't know every single emotional component of the reaction that people had to it, asking Jesus to leave, trying, <laughs> asking him to leave. But what's so interesting to me is that, and this happens so often, people watch a miracle happen or they watch somebody's life change or they witness something and it just doesn't do it for them. They don't, it doesn't change their ways, but the man who was changed 
they're telling Jesus to leave. He's begging to go with Jesus, right? And Jesus tells him, go and tell everybody what, what I've done for you. And when that man goes and, and clearly lives it out and tells it and shares it, that's when you start to see that, that change. And so I think the message to us is that you can avoid all of this and you can, and most people are never going to be possessed, but, but people are going to deal with spiritual warfare. Um, you can avoid all of this by clinging to Jesus, that he is the solution to it and that he is patient and loving and compassionate because you're right. He's sitting there talking with these de demons and showing a lot of restraint and patience and calmness. And yes, he, he uh, gives them the permission. He allows them to go into the pigs, the pigs die, which I'm sure upset the people who <laughs> who own the pigs. And that could be one reason why they wanted Jesus to go. But even if that's the case, they miss the point and they miss the point that he is the solution to, and the overcomer when it comes to evil, um, not only the, the very literal evil we're seeing here, um, but also our solution to being our connection to God and to salvation. So there's a lot there in this story. It's pretty incredible, actually. Yeah. There, there, I love what you just said about them missing the point. I, I think uh, we can, um, close off this exploration of the story with some of that missing the pointness of one thing that strikes me too, is that um, Jesus said the fundamental reality that he is trying to invite us into is a branch embedded in the vine and the branch embedded in the vine gets the life of the vine. And therefore the fruit coming through the branch is completely fed by the life of the vine. So what we are seeing here in Jesus in his encounter with the demonic is the same life and authority that flows into us. And we can express that life and authority in the same relaxed way he does, because he knows he has the freedom to negotiate because he knows he has the final say here. Um, the demons don't assume that they have a real position of strength. Yeah. They're just trying to negotiate from their position of weakness. They know it's up to Jesus in the end, what happens to them. And Jesus, I think, wants us to know that too around our connections to what is dark on this spiritual world, that it's really, he's the one that has the final authority, not the other way around, but in the missing the point category, um, it's, fa it's fascinating to me that the demons go into the pigs and they drown in the ocean and a massive economic uh, hit is taken by those that own those pigs in the entire region and Jesus doesn't seem to care that much yeah. about that. And you're right. I think that I think the people are upset uh, for obvious reasons why. But one of the economies of Jesus is, hey, I just set a man free here. Right. And you're telling me that the loss of 2000 pigs is worth more than that. You don't understand the kingdom of God. Which I shows I feel you their condition potentially. And again, I don't want to read too much into it, but it, it seems to me this very well could have been a place where there were a lot of issues ongoing. This was not the first time that somebody had experienced this, that, you know, these, these are hardened. They seem to be hardened people after they've seen a miracle, no matter how upset you are. I mean, if I saw that, I'd be clinging to Jesus. I don't care if I lost my pigs. I'd be, you know, but I think for, for them, it's not important enough that the law, you know, that loss, that anger, that frustration, that uncertainty, even of what happened, they're not drawn toward wanting to know more of it. They're repelled by it. It's just, they want it gone. And even the restoration of this man that they likely knew before he was possessed to his normal state seems like a secondary concern to them in light of this. And yeah, I, and I understand why that's human to react that way, but <laughs> something just happened that, that, that they've, for sure never seen happen before. 
And there's a power at work here that they have no idea about. And instead of being drawn to it, in fact, Legion seems more interested in Jesus than the crowd does. <laughs> they do. Yeah. I mean, it's, isn't that interesting, right? Yeah. And, and because, because they know, they know how this, how this story ends for them. So it's, it's, or they, they know that Jesus has the authority, right? So I'm, yeah. I'm, uh, and I think in, in Matthew, in the telling of this, they, they actually say something along the lines of, are you going to torment us before the time? Uh, um, which is really, really intriguing. Yeah. Well, the last thing that happens with this man is that he begs Jesus to go with him. And Jesus says, no, no, don't. I get, I get how excited and grateful you are right now and how all in you are with me, but I'd like you to stay home and spread the news of what I've done of my mercy and the grace you just experienced, spread the news in your own region. So Billy, just to close us off, why do you think he responded that way to the man who had been possessed? I think he knew that this was going to be a story of restoration that reached people. And it did. I mean, that's the, we, we know that obviously everything that happens in life, every decision we make, every bad decision, every good decision, God can use anything for his glory. And I think this was a scenario where that's what happened. And that knowing that this is going to be a powerful, compelling story. That's the thing. I love to tell other people's powerful and compelling stories. And many times it's not even the actual like miracle itself watching it, which we saw in this case wasn't as compelling. It was actually seeing the change over time in a person and hearing, and obviously like that juxtaposition to the crazy person and the possessed person to this healed person and having the chance to interact with that now sane person, that seemed to really resonate with people here. So I think Jesus knew that was gonna be the case and used it for that purpose. I think it's important to remember at the end of this conversation, uh, I, it, it just, this always comes back to me that uh, a, a graduate student um, asked Dallas Willard toward the end of Dallas Willard's life, graduate student was with him and he asked him, um, what's one word, just one word that you think best describes Jesus? And the great theologian Dallas Willard said, relaxed. I just love that response. I think it is the central quality of Jesus's deep security that he can respond relaxed to a man like this in a situation like this, because he's not insecure. Mm. Like we, we, we can't imagine life without our insecurity, but Jesus is not insecure. And this is the compelling thing that sort of is part of my magnet toward him is, is the things he does and says, and the way he describes the kingdom of God come from a secure person. And I've never known anyone like that. On, only he is secure in that way. And I think his security shows up in spades in this encounter with, with Legion. And again, he wants to share his security with us, especially mm. relative to situations like this. Any last word you want to say, Billy, before we uh, close off? I would just say, you know, for anybody who is intrigued by these topics, if you haven't looked at them, you know, I'd encourage people to examine it, to look at it. Obviously, I have I have the book and I'd love for you to check that out, but read the Bible. I mean, look at look at what scripture says about it and understand it because that is the at the end of the day, this is not something to obsess over or have an unhealthy relationship with. It is something to understand. It's also not something to ignore. And I think too many of us have ignored this in the church. We don't understand it. And as we just, we went through one story and we looked at that and there's so much more we could have said. There's so much to unpack here. And it shows us so much about that, 
that power dynamic, but really about the heart of Jesus and our solution in this world to the pain and the hurt and the chaos and the anger and the ugliness that we see all around us. There you go. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Again, the book uh, by Billy Hollowell is Playing With Fire. I'll put a link to it on our podcast episode page. This is season six of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, episode 17. That's where you can find the link um, to that book. Check it out if you're intrigued by this conversation. I think what uh, what Billy is saying through, uh, in the in the gaps here is be curious. Don't don't ignore massive areas of modeling of relationship that Jesus has given us. Don't ignore it just because it seems um, over the top. There's something here that Jesus wants us to know, and that the gospel writers definitely wanted us to know about his encounters with with evil. So. So pursue it. Uh, a great first step, as Billy has said, is go check out his book, uh, Playing With Fire. So this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you again next week.